Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to tell you about how you can help Spiked. Spiked is free. We have no paywall, no subscription model. We want everyone to be able to read our commentary and listen to our podcasts, and that's why we will be staying free. And you can help us to do that by making a donation. To those of you who already donate, thank you very much. We really couldn't do what we do without you. To those thinking of donating, how about doing it today? The best kind of donation is a regular monthly one. Donating as little as £5 a month can make a huge difference to what we do. So if you'd like to join the band of people who help to keep Spiked free and thriving, just go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. And now on with the show. If Brexit has a justification above all others, it's that this gives people a a chance to make the people who govern them listen, as opposed to a system which is really a system of oligarchies, which are more and more insulated from popular opinion and popular wishes. It's always been part of the European project, a feeling that democracy had had proved itself too dangerous in the 1930s. And therefore, the elite thought we must make sure that people no longer have this kind of power. It must be placed in the hands of experts, really depoliticised. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Robert Toombs. Robert is a historian and author. He is a historian of France, and he is Professor Emeritus of French History at Cambridge University. He is the author of numerous books about French history, including The War Against Paris, 1871, France, 1814 to 1914, and That Sweet Enemy, The French and the British from the Sun King to the Present. More recently, he has turned his attention to British history. In 2014, Pengweng published his book, The English and Their History, The First 13 Centuries, and this year has seen the release of his new book, This Sovereign Isle, Britain in and Out of Europe. Robert is also a co-editor at Briefings for Brexit, which is a group of academics who support Britain's withdrawal from the European Union. Robert, I wanted to start off with one of the threads that runs through your book, This Sovereign Isle, Britain in and Out of Europe. And the book really kicks off with the idea that geography comes before history. And you take us on this potted historic journey through the peripheral nature of Britain in relation to Europe, how we've always been on the outskirts, we've always been somewhat on the outside. Europe has always looked to us not only as a source of wonder and interest, but also as a source of invasion and threat and difficulty and turmoil. 
I wonder if you could just explain to our listeners how much you think that geography, that geographical reality has shaped how we think as a nation and possibly even how we think politically. I mean, I was I sort of was taking a risk by starting off with a a blindingly obvious statement. <laughs> but I wanted to make two points. One is that we are a European nation. Fair enough. You know, a lot of people use this as a sort of clinching argument, but that we're not the same kind of European nation as one that is in the middle of the continental plain of Eastern Europe, in that mm-hmm. our, our connection with Europe has always been, as, as you say, somewhat peripheral. And the other point I was trying to make, and which I come back to at the end, is that geography has been getting less important for quite a long time now, for 300 years or more, yeah. um, and that therefore our geography does not determine, you know, it, it, in a sense it gives the context for our history, but it doesn't tell us what our history must always be. And therefore my conclusion is that our geographical location is in the modern world less important than other kinds of connections, cultural, linguistic, economic. So if we go to our flirtation with closer union with Europe that has existed over the past few decades, this obviously forms the bulk of your book, The History of our entry into Europe and then our rather dramatic exit from Europe over the past couple of years. One thing I wanted to draw out with you was the seemingly contradictory nature of our first entry into the modern European project. So we're in the post-war period. It's the 1940s, the 1950s. We have the the Treaty of Rome, the rise of the EEC in the late 1950s. And one thing that struck me very much about the way in which you tell this story is, is the extent to which for the rulers of Britain in the 50s and 60s in particular, entering the European community was very much driven by geopolitical concerns, very much by post-empire concerns, a feeling that a country that had once been the global equal of the United States or the USSR was no longer any such thing or was certainly dwindling. And the European project was seen as a means of Britain regaining some sense of global authority. Could you just say something about how you think that worked itself out? It was indeed a sort of rescue project. One of Ted Heath's advisors said Europe was uh, was the lifeboat, Britain was the Titanic. There was this extraordinary sense, you're too young to remember it, but I remember it from my childhood and early and, and youth. There was this sense that Britain was a country in catastrophic decline in every mm. kind of way. And that Europe, therefore, whatever the price of joining, whatever the conditions, was the only way of saving ourselves from marginalization, humiliation, impoverishment, and, and all the rest. And this seems to have been an extraordinarily powerful vision. And for some people, it still is. I mean, it hasn't gone away. And I would say it can clearly be demonstrated that this was largely an illusion. And I think an illusion partly based on a, a huge overestimate of Britain's power in the 19th century. You know, you look back to the the high Victorian age and think, you know, Britain had a great empire, it ruled the world, and now we haven't got an empire and we're just a small country. But, you know, Britain had never had that kind of power. Indeed, no country has. The United States hasn't got it now. You know, Britain had a very large empire, but that wasn't the the source of its power or its wealth. And we were one of, you know, okay, maybe the first among equals of the European great powers, which you could say we still are. But with very limited, you know, limited power, Disraeli, Gladstone, Palmerston, they all knew that. You know, it sometimes seems to me that, that no Victorian statesman would have considered having troops in the Baltic states to defend them against Russia as we now have. 
they, it would have seemed a crazy thing to do. I mean, they, they were afraid of being invaded, you know, that the French were going to invade us or the Russians were going to invade us or the Germans are going to invade us. You can't imagine anyone thinking that now, really. So, I mean, the idea that we've sort of declined in comparison with, with similar countries is simply, you know, I would say clearly untrue. And yet for the post-war generation, the post-imperial generation, they certainly had this sense of decline. And yet if you say, you know, if you think, well, what were they comparing their position in the 1950s with? It's very difficult to see, really. You know, as I said, maybe the Victorian age, or maybe the, the height of mobilization in the Second World War. And you could say, well, in, you know, we were one of the big three, was often said, the same as the Americans, the same as the Russians. But that was, that was the effect of a huge effort of mobilization. It was not something that you would ever keep up. And if you're to compare Britain with its traditional rivals, if you like, or its traditional neighbors, there's been no decline at all. I mean, the only thing that's really happened in world geopolitics over the last century is the emergence of the United States, compared with which every other country is a secondary power. Mm. It's not decline. I mean, everybody knew this was going to happen. Even Napoleon predicted this. And of course, the other thing that's happened very recently is, is the emergence of China. But the fact that these continental-sized states have fulfilled to some extent their potential doesn't mean to say that we've declined. You know, you could say, well, isn't that a quibble? Because there's a relative decline. But there's not a relative decline except in comparison with the United States. And compared with Germany, France... Russia and so on. There's been no decline at all, it seems to me. So, okay, the, the reason why the generation of the 1950s thought that Europe was going to save them from marginalization, I think, was just a historical misunderstanding, if you'll forgive me, being rather arrogant. And, and the other thing was the belief that the economy was collapsing. You know, once <clears> we've been the workshop of the world, now we're not. But, you know, it's a very similar story. Again, America had become the world's economic superpower. There wasn't any other one really. And what Macmillan's generation, Wilson's generation thought was happening was that European states were overtaking us. Whereas what was really happening, we can now see in, in perspective, is that they were having a period of post-war recovery. They were modernizing their economies. They had a one-off period of a generation of very rapid growth. But once that had happened, it, it slowed down. And the consequence is that since the 1990s, Britain has been outperforming the European economies, slightly but consistently. So the idea that we were declining economically just turns out not to be true. Uh, and yet this seems to me, this is still much of the, the, the foundation myth, if you like, or the foundation myths of the, the kind of remainer or rejoiner mindset in which it's this sense of weakness, marginalization, decline, failure, that means you've got to attach yourself to the EU or to the European project, because otherwise, as the diplomat who negotiated our entry put it, we, we'd just be a bigger Sweden. On that subject, on that historical period, I think one of the things that's very interesting about the chapters in your book in relation to this is, it strikes me there was a contradiction or a confusion at the heart of this this desire to offset a sense of decline in the post-war period, to offset a sense of decline by joining the European project in the belief in some instances that Britain could lead the European project. We would send a very powerful signal to the United States and also to the Commonwealth about our continuing power. But at the same time as there was this illusion that joining the European Union would boost Britain's power and its standing in the world, it was also recognised that joining the European community would involve 
delegating an extraordinary amount of political power and an extraordinary amount of sovereignty. And you, you quote the Lord Chancellor in the early 1970s, I believe, who said that acceding to the Treaty of Rome would would involve the most extensive delegation of powers in memory. So could you just say something about this kind of strange situation that existed at that time, where on the one hand, there was this belief of British declinism could be reversed in some way by joining Europe, while at the same time recognising that it would involve giving away a huge amount of British political power. Yeah, it's, it's, in a way, it's very odd, as you say. And I think in a, in a way, it's, it's a feeling that the country is failing, but the elite is still cleverer than everybody else. <laughs> okay, Britain has lost its empire. We, we, the elite, no longer have these huge resources that our fathers and grandfathers had. But we're nevertheless, we have the experience, the sophistication. You know, it was, it was the same as Macmillan's belief that we would be Greece to America's Rome. You know, somehow we mm. were cleverer than they were. And therefore, you know, okay, these Europeans, they may, they may be doing very well economically. There, there may be a lot of them. But, you know, Dutch politicians, German politicians, they're a pretty dim lot. They haven't got our experience of the world. And so once we're in, we shall be leading it. I mean, I think you get exactly the same thing in France. The same feeling that the country is, is going to decline unless it can find a role as leader of a new Europe. One has to admit the French elite has been much better at it than the British elite. Whether it's going to catch up with them now is another matter. But I think there was this, this oddity of an elite that hasn't lost confidence in its own abilities, but it somehow lost confidence in its, in its country. One of the things that I thought was most powerful about that part of your book was it disabused me of a particular idea, because one argument that I have used, and I know lots of other pro-Brexit people have used this argument too, is the idea that when the European community first formed, when the idea and the institutions first emerged, it was it was kind of only economic. I mean, only economic is a is a contradiction in terms in itself. It, the, the economy is always about more than simply the economy. It's about power and politics. But the understanding was that the origins of the European community were pretty narrow, largely to do with economic questions. And it became political later on. It grew in its political ambitions, giving rise eventually to the Maastricht Treaty and the attempted European Union constitution and various other things that we've seen over the recent decades. But one point you make very clearly is that certainly for the British elites, and I presume for other elites in Europe too, this was political from the very beginning. This was more about geopolitics, more about one's sense of purpose and mission in the world, more than it was about economic questions. Do you think that's fair? The simple answer, I think, is, is yes. It was always political, and it was always known to be political by those who are actually taking the decisions. But I think it's, it's in a sense, a complicated question because they didn't necessarily agree on how far this would go. Hmm. So you have a lot of British politicians including you know, people like Margaret Thatcher later, who tend to think that when Europeans are talking about ever closer union or that this is just all talk, you know, it's never going to happen, really. And therefore, you can go along with this and you can kind of guide it or prevent it from happening. I think Heath, if I remember rightly, said to the cabinet something like, you know, they're, they're talking about federalism now, but once we're inside, we can make sure that never happens. And, you know, it, in a sense, it wasn't a stupid belief because the idea of European federation is such a far-fetched idea in many ways. And of course, it's caused huge problems, as we know. So, you know, if you were taking a common sense view in the 1950s or 60s, you might well say, yes, well, you know, they talk about this, but it's not going to happen. But but yes, I mean, diplomats at least, politicians, lawyers did realise that this meant giving 
sovereignty away. But then, you know, the argument has always been sovereignty doesn't really mean much in the modern world. Uh, you know, you can pool. I think people often confuse sovereignty with power, mm. as if by pooling sovereignty, as the phrase goes, you become more powerful and therefore more sovereign. But what happens really is, and one sees this very clearly in the EU, is that in a sense, everybody loses sovereignty. You know, who, who in the EU now makes the final decisions? I don't think you could really say. You could say, well, maybe Angela Merkel to some extent, or is it the, the board of the European Central Bank, or you know, is it parts of the European Commission, or is it the European Court of Justice? Individual states and elected governments may well have lost their sovereignty, but where's it gone? It's yeah. kind of disappeared into some void. I sometimes think of the EU as a, as a bit like a black hole. You know, it, it sucks power and sovereignty away from elected governments, but there's no coherent way in which it can actually use that sovereignty or exercise that sovereignty. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Going a further with your history of, of our relationship with Europe, I want to go to the the referendum of 1975, the question of whether we should stay in the EEC, which was obviously successful. The answer was yes, we should. Reading your book gave me a very clear impression of just how influential that referendum must have been on the future of British politics. I obviously don't remember it. I wasn't around. But I think it was very striking in, in your description of it, how the forces we are familiar with today were really lining up at that time, even though they may have switched sides in, in various different ways, which I want to come on to in a second. But one of the things that struck me was you quote a European commissioner who says, why on earth is this question being put to housewives when it should really be the property of experts and people who, who know what they're doing? And it really struck me that in the 50s and 60s, the question of European integration had been the property of the elites. It was something they were working out amongst themselves. And 1975, in the British context, seems to me to be have been an incredibly important turning point, even though it kept us in the EEC, a very important turning point in throwing open these questions to the public and transforming how we understand them. Yes, I think that's true. And it, it's something I hadn't really given enough thought to, because it, it, in a sense, it gives a legitimacy to our membership, or it gave a legitimacy to our membership of the EU or to the EEC, as it then was, which would previously not have been there. But I, I think, you know, it was done by, to some extent, I think, and I, I don't mean this as a sort of cheap uh, lever point. It was done to some extent by confusing the issue. You know, mm. it, it was not about, as our 2016 referendum was, was clearly about politics and sovereignty more than anything else. In 75, I think it wasn't. Indeed, it was denied that this was a major change in sovereignty that this was really about economics, and it was about having a, a more prosperous future and being part of a dynamic economic system and not really changing very much. Now, in, in that case, I think you can criticise some politicians who knew that it was much more than that. 
But the only ones who said it really out loud were the mavericks of the time, the Reverend Ian Paisley, uh, Tony (laughs) Benn, Enoch Powell, you know, strange combination of, of voices, but people who had a quite clear idea of what this meant, or at least were willing to say what it meant, whereas many others were wanted to obfuscate it, or as I said earlier, who didn't really believe it was going to happen. Therefore, you, you didn't need to talk about this because it was it was a pipe dream. You mentioned there the the peculiar alliances that emerged in opposition to our continuing membership of the European project. And I wanted to touch on that because that's one of the striking things about the chapter on this is how much things have changed between then and now. So you described the fact that in 1975, it was primarily the left who were arguing against continuing involvement in European federalism, famously Tony Benn. There's a wonderful video on YouTube showing Barbara Castle at the Oxford Union in the mid-1970s arguing against membership. And what's really striking about it is that she talks about what will happen to the Commonwealth, what will happen to poorer countries in the Commonwealth who export things to Britain if we become part of this rather protectionist trade block. And it's very striking. She's surrounded by all these incredibly posh students who laugh at this prospect that we should care about how some country exports pears or whatever it exports to the UK. And it was a really interesting snapshot of how things stood in the, in the mid-1970s. But in relation to the left, I wanted to get your views on how you think things changed as dramatically as they did. So in the mid-70s, there was a sense among large sections of the left that the Europe project was a capitalist club, a bit of a con. It was a boss's club and, and British workers would not benefit from it. Of course, if we fast forward to today, the left tends to be most favourable of European integration. How do you think that shift came about? Well, I, I would think it's partly was sort of the Blairite <laughs> dominance of, of Labour and Blair's keenness to be within a, you know, very happy to be in, inside a, a capitalist club. On the other hand, most of the, the far left, with the exception of the, you know, the older generation, sort of Jeremy Corbyn, changed its, what it thought that left-wing politics meant, which became, mm. you know, we, we know much more about identity politics. And therefore, for them, I think, though, you know, I don't know whether you think this is right, that that the, the question of membership of the EU was not really about the EU at all. It wasn't really about the practicalities of membership. It was about the symbols of being part of a an international body, not letting the, you know, Farage and UKIP and, and the right win and associating Brexit with xenophobia, racism, whatever. I mean, the other thing, I suppose, the sort of trade union view was at the time of Delors that, that whereas Thatcher was trying to turn the EU more into an instrument of globalization and of neoliberalism, if you like. And they, they couldn't cope with that politically at home. But Delors was, was offering them a way of resisting that on a European basis. There was a kind of deal in a way or in which, okay, you have a single market, you have the, the neoliberal Thatcherite elements being introduced into the EU. But at the same time, you have a major effort to preserve or so it seemed at least, social rights and so on. So for, for the Labour Party, all of a sudden, the, the EU is what can save them from further defeat by, by neoliberalism. You can't do it by convincing the British electorate, because the British electorate are stupid. <laughs> but fortunately, there are more enlightened people in Europe who will make sure that we keep the things that we cherish. I mean, I think this applies to the Greens too. 
you know, British electorate not interested. But on the other hand, the Europeans will make sure that we can't do these devastating things to the planet. So the EU becomes the kind of safeguard of many of the values of of, of a different kind of left from the left of Tony Benn or Peter Shaw or indeed, you know, Ernie Bevin, which is a much more patriotic, conservative, in some ways democratic kind of yeah. Labour Party, and I suppose a more socialist Labour Party than than the modern left, which is about other things. Is that is that? Do you think that's fair? Yes, I do think that's fair. I think that's a a good description, particularly the growing loss of faith in the British electorate, which I think causes this slow but sure turn towards the institutions of Europe and viewing them as the guarantors of decent left-wing ways of organising social affairs where you could never trust the electorate to vote for such things. I think I've always thought that the the left's shift towards being pro-EU has really been proportionate to their loss of faith in British voters. And this, I'm sure there's a very clear parallel between those two things. But of course, uh, you could say I, they've been they've been had. Yes. If you think what's happened to Southern Europe, levels, of, levels of unemployment that would be unimaginable previously, and the creation of a kind of new gold standard in, in the euro. The gold standard which applied in the 19th century, and many, many economists, I suppose, I think Keynes probably said this, you can't imagine having a gold standard in a democratic society because a democracy won't stand for the levels of unemployment that this kind yeah. of economic, deflationary economic strategy requires. But that's just what the EU has created. Absolutely. Uh, I think the whatever illusions the British elites of the 60s and 70s may have had in the European project, I think the left's illusions that the European project is some wonderful socialist ideal that is pro-working class people is, is on another level. And the, also the belief that uh, you can reform it. You know, okay, the yeah. there's lots wrong with the EU, but... You know, one day there'll be some great democratic transformation which will turn it into the kind of social democratic paradise that we've always wanted and which potentially is there. But of course, it, it's not there. It's no, there's no such agenda. There's no such, there's no way in which this can be brought about. Yeah, absolutely. Continuing with your historical canter through Britain and, and Europe, I want to look at the period between 1975 and then, of course, 2016. Obviously, very many things happened in that period. Um, you described very well how one of the unfortunate things for Britain is that when it joins the EU, the world is almost instantly hit with an economic crisis, which changes things dramatically. But one of the other things that struck me reading reading your description of that time period, particularly as we move into the Maastricht Treaty of the 1990s, and then the various failures that the European Union faced in the 2000s, when the Dutch and the French voted against the Constitution in 2005. The Irish, of course, rejected the Nice Treaty and then later on the Lisbon Treaty. And you have this great quote where you say that around that time, there was a recognition among the Blairites in particular, that the only way in which they could really remain part of the European project was by preventing a public vote on this question. So Blair prevented a vote on the Constitution in 2005. And there was a consciousness that the only way you could protect the European project was by insulating it from any form of referendum or any form of public judgment. Yeah. And the question that brought to my mind, I thought you described that incredibly well, but then it made me wonder why there was such certainty in 2016 that the establishment view, which is that we would all vote remain, 
why they were so convinced that they would be victorious. Do you have any ideas on how blinkered they became to go from the Maastricht Treaty period of the early 90s through all those various failures and a recognition of the dangers of Euroscepticism to then being convinced that they were going to win the 2016 referendum? What do you think that tells us? Well, it's a great mystery to me. I, you know, as you say, there's a whole, there's a whole history of um, popular votes all over Europe going against the European project. Mm-hmm. And yet, I mean, this is, this is true. We are, over the long term, the, the most Eurosceptic part of, of the EU as, as we then were. So how on earth they would have thought that uh, after all that had happened with the euro crisis, the, the sovereign debt crisis, and it being reported, and, and everyone knowing that, that this was working very badly, especially in Southern Europe, you could hardly miss it, that somehow we'd vote to stay in. Well, I, I mean, I... I don't know. I think in a way you'd have to you'd have to um, interview David Cameron or George Osborne <laughs> and ask them why they thought that, or indeed Nick Clegg. But I guess they thought if, as had happened in '75, if all the political parties or, or at least all the party leaders are telling people they've got to vote to remain, and that, you know they're getting all people like Barack Obama to come and say it, and the, they're all saying what a disaster this is going to be if we leave, that people would basically do as they were told. But as you rightly say, it was well known that, well, Tony Blair says in his memoirs, I was off the hook because he could avoid having a, a referendum in 2005. And at the time, I think people realized that it would have been a no vote. So I guess, I mean, the only way I can sort of explain it is that though you could imagine losing a referendum over a European constitution, after all, the French government lost it, the Dutch government lost it, although they put pressure on their own electors to vote for that taking the ultimate step of leaving must have been for the, you know, the the establishment, if if we can call it that, must have seemed such a horrendous step that they couldn't really imagine that anybody would, or that the majority would take it. And of course, they were almost right. I mean, if you assume that there are reasons for thinking there's a big, there was a big Eurosceptic majority in Britain. If I remember rightly, Sir John Curtis says two thirds of the population held what you could call Eurosceptic views. Well, the, the two-thirds was whittled down to 52%. Yeah. They almost did it. They did almost do it. Thank, thank God they didn't. The other thing that struck me about that section of your book in relation to the events of the 2000s in particular was, I think that's really the period when the fear of the electorate becomes quite palpable in discussions about the future of the European Union. I mean, obviously that has been there for a long time, as revealed in the the dismissive housewives comment of 1975, which I'm sure many people at that time in the elite shared that view. But after the defeats of the constitution in 2005, and also the rejection of the Lisbon Treaty by the Irish in 2008, a lot of that stuff comes much more to the surface. So you quote Neil Kinnock describing the Dutch and French votes against the constitution as a triumph of ignorance. And one thing I vividly remember, because I was in Dublin at the time, was the absolute fury that was heaped upon the Irish electorate when they dared to reject the Lisbon Treaty. I mean, they were openly talked about as schoolchildren who had defied the teacher and spat in the soup and they get all this money from the European Union and then they dare to do something as disobedient as this. I mean, openly contemptuous commentary was pretty widespread at the time. Do you think that played a role in creating the tensions that became clearer later on around the Brexit referendum in relation to 
an elite trying to insulate itself from public pressure and people wanting a greater input into political life. There's quite a lot of sort of theoretical literature now on the on the EU and its politics, as I'm sure you know. And one way of describing it is to, is to say that the, the horizontal links between European politicians, and it also applies to civil servants, are now much stronger than the vertical links that link them with their own citizens. And therefore, they feel that they're part of this European political elite. Indeed, they are part of it. Their careers have been spent in it. They measure their success by how they operate within it and tend to lose much more contact with their their electorates. The fact that we were able to vote to leave shows that perhaps that that hadn't gone as far as it had in certain countries, though, you know, as we've said, pretty close. But the sense that your country might opt out of this whole system seemed so crazy to, to the people, you know, whose lives and careers have been spent within it that I think they were they were terrified by it. Mm-hmm. After all, it was quite difficult for anyone to take responsibility for it in this country once it had happened. Mm. You know, Cameron, of course, walks off immediately. <laughs> you know, you find May, but May never never endorses Brexit. She would never say that she supported it. You know, Gove and Johnson disappeared from the scene. So who was actually going to take responsibility for this? And it was, mm-hmm. you know, it took an awfully long time to get a government that was actually more or less willing to say they would do it. And I think in many countries, well, my guess is that in practically all EU member states, you would have a very similar phenomenon in which you no longer have a political class which has the self-confidence to to obey its electorate rather than obeying the, the horizontal pressures and inducements that come from the EU system as a whole. Okay, I want to move on then to the next stage in history, which is very much still alive and unresolved and will influence affairs for a very long time to come, which is the referendum of 2016 and the ongoing fallout from that really important historical event. And the first thing I want to touch on with you is you write about in the book the class differential in terms of how people voted. And this is not simply true for the vote in Britain in 2016, but it's been true for numerous votes for or against the European Union. It tends to be the case that the more working class or the less privileged you are, the more likely you are to reject the expansion of European power, the European constitution or the European Union itself. And that was certainly the case in the UK. And then you also have a very good anecdote where you are talking to a colleague, I think, or, or certainly an academic who who says that she never understood Brexit at all until her gardener and her cleaning lady tried to explain it to her, which I thought was a very apt description of the kind of divisions that weren't created by Brexit, but certainly were exposed by it. So I wonder how, how far would you push the importance of the class differential in, in terms of who is for the EU and who is against it. Would you go as far as someone like Maurice Glassman, for example, who says that Brexit was essentially a working class revolt? Or, or do you think it's something a bit further down the ladder than that? I agree. I hadn't realised that Maurice Glassman said that, but I agree with that. And David Goodhart wrote, this was the most class defined election of, of his lifetime, something like that. Mm. In other words, since you go back to the 1950s. And that seems to me true. But of course, many people absolutely wanted to deny this was a, this was about class. 
You know, it was all about yeah. education or age or identity or openness to the world and so on. But, you know, it's fundamentally, it seems to me, it is, it is about class. Okay, I think it's probably not as much about class as were the elections of the 1950s, which were our most, I think it's true to say, our most ever class-divided politics, in which I can't remember the figures, but, you know, 80% of workers voted Labour and 80% of the middle classes voted Tory. I mean, it's not quite as much, it's not as much as that, because you do get a considerable slice of the, of the middle class who vote for Leave, and you do get a solid slice of the Labour electorate who votes for Remain, partly for reasons that we, we talked about earlier. But nevertheless, I, I do think that the essence, as, as Maurice Glassman put it, the essence is a class one, and it's about whether you you feel that you benefit or whether you really do benefit or not from this international, you know, globalizing economic and social system. I think that's right. And I think that became clearer in many ways after the referendum. So, of course, you can analyze who voted in the referendum and you can look at the socioeconomic circumstances of the people who voted in various ways. But I think in some ways, the fallout from the referendum shone an even sharper light on some of these questions. So, you describe very well the reaction to the referendum result, particularly in metropolitan centres and university towns where there was essentially almost a hysterical meltdown in response to the victory of Leave. You say there was consternation, tears, anger and alarm. And if anyone thinks you're exaggerating, I saw people crying on the streets outside the Houses of Parliament on numerous occasions after the vote for Brexit. So that's a very real thing. You know, the blue paint running down their face because some of them had the European flag painted onto their faces. I wanted to ask you what you thought that meltdown was really about, because it strikes me, maybe I'm wrong on this, but it, it strikes me that the European Union is a difficult institution to love. And I'm very, very sceptical of the idea that anyone could love the European Union so much that they would weep on the streets when it was defeated in a referendum. There's something else going on there, isn't there? It's not simply about what happens to Brussels. Many of these people probably could not name a European commissioner or might not know the ins and outs of how Brussels work. Many people don't. And yet they feel this deep emotional attachment. It, that's more about identity and signalling who you are as a person in your own society, do you think? Yes. And, you know, the, the EU has been very successful in creating a, a sense that it is Europe. So, you know, as you say, not many people love the EU or know much about it or care much about it as a system, as a political and economic system. But then lots of people feel they care about Europe and they want to be European. And, you know, the EU, I think probably its greatest success has been a PR one of portraying itself as the embodiment of, of an international ideal. And in the book somewhere, I say, I think it, you know, there are things that it has in common with the League of Nations, the United Nations in its heyday, even the Green Movement, in that people might say, well, there's lots that's wrong with the EU, but nevertheless, it stands for some great moral cause. And the desire to associate oneself with such a cause was clearly one of the things that made people cry. Mm. As we all know, if you can combine self-interest with altruism seamlessly, it's a very powerful combination. So for many people, they felt that they were certainly told that they were being deprived of great opportunities. The opportunity to study and travel and work in Europe was being taken away from them. And at the same time, this great European 
ideal was being destroyed by nasty right-wing, white, middle-aged people that they didn't have much contact with, didn't have much sympathy with, perhaps were a bit scared of. And I, th- I think it, my explanation would be, would be something along those lines. And in relation to what came after that, which was something that I still find quite shocking when I think about it now, but there was an open effort to stop Brexit from being enacted. And I have this inner fear that we are somewhat whitewashing this from history and, and glossing over the fact that this happened or pretending that it wasn't quite as explicit as some people tried to make out it was. But there was an attempt which was almost successful. And you describe in your book how the constitution actually, in the end, successfully prevented this this attempted overthrow of a democratic vote from being successful. But it was almost successful. And I, I wanted to ask you what you think the long-term consequences of that will be. Because there's also another interesting part in your book, towards the end, where you talk about how we will remember this period in the future, how it will be historically understood. And you raise the possibility that it won't actually linger in the historical imagination for a very long time, because very often huge political upsets don't. But I wonder in the shorter term, or at least the medium term, do you think this effort by various wings of the establishment to prevent a vote from being enacted will have a long-term impact on how people understand democracy, their role in society, the fragility of their right to vote? What do you think might be the consequences of that campaign? Well, that's a terribly difficult question. There'll be a desire on both sides to airbrush it out, I think. You know, because a lot of us don't really want to keep the culture war going. And I've, I sort of find somewhat to my surprise that, I, that I'm meeting a lot more leavers now than I ever knew, than I ever had in the past, <laughs> and, uh, and fewer remainers. And I think, you know, I sometimes feel that in 10 years' time, that you, you won't ever meet anyone who yeah. supported Remain. You know, there's a tendency to get on the bandwagon, as it were, and to, but I mean, it's possible that won't happen. I think, you know, maybe it will shift into other areas. Other, okay. other kinds of culture war. Because in, insofar as support for Remain was, for some people, consciously a rejection of the nation, the nation state, national identity, then there are, there are other ways of pursuing that kind of wish. As far as the EU is concerned, I don't think the idea of rejoining the EU has got any, uh, you know, Keir Starmer and the Labour leadership have at least got the sense to see that that's, uh, that's flogging a dead horse. And I think, you know, the idea that any serious political party with a possible exception of the Scottish Nationalists, if, and I suppose they are a serious party in, in some ways, if they, that they would actually campaign to rejoin the EU seems to me to be pretty crazy, mm-hmm. especially as the EU is constantly running into inevitable problems, that it will become less and less attractive. You know, the status quo, in a sense, being in the EU was attractive because it seemed to be the safe option. But going back into the EU, I think, is not a serious political objective. So I think, you know, that in that sense, people will probably want to forget what they said and did or what was said and done during these last four years. Whether everyone will forget them, I don't know. My guess is that we'll probably uh, paper over the cracks and think it's better to, you know, use that great phrase, move on. What's the point of not doing so? Mm. I hope some things will be done. I hope that the House of Lords will be reformed. 
you know, reformed in inverted commas. I hope the Supreme Court will will be seriously examined. You know, things like that, I think, definitely need to happen. That's the thing that worries me, I suppose, about the potential airbrushing from history of, of things that happened very recently, because it could potentially push to one side the necessity of talking about the role that the House of Lords plays, the role that the Supreme Court plays, and the, and the view that significant sections of the elites have of ordinary people, voters, the idea of democracy itself. And in relation to that, I wanted to ask you, you are obviously a historian, you have fairly recently shifted from your expertise on, on French and European history to, to studying the English and the history of the English. And one thing I wanted to ask you is, is to what extent you think the response to the referendum, the meltdown, the, the four-year effort among certain sections of society to prevent this vote from being enacted, to what extent do you think that spoke to unresolved questions from history? I mean, one of my favourite and funniest events of the past four years was in 2019, when it was the 200th anniversary of the Peterloo Massacre. And Mike Lee released a film about the Peterloo Massacre. And it was really striking because all the kind of guardianistas and liberals who had devoted themselves to blocking the enactment of the vote for Brexit, which was voted for by <laughs> 8 million women, millions of working class people, they all took a break from trying to prevent this vote from going through to, to go and cry in the cinemas at Mike Lee's telling of the story of the march on St. Peter's Fields. And it, it brought to my mind the possibility that there are unresolved questions from history in relation to how much power ordinary people should have, how much democratic clout they should have, whether experts are preferable in political life to to the man in the street, all those things that have been swirling around in one form or another for hundreds of years. Do you think the events of recent times raises the possibility that those things aren't quite as resolved as we might have thought they were. Well, I, I think you're probably much more left-wing than me, which probably <laughs> means you're more optimistic about the ability to change fundamentals in the way societies run. There are always unresolved things. Politics and democratic politics is a constant struggle, usually peaceful, but unrelenting. And in, you know, in a way, what the Chartists wanted, people still want and, and will always want. Just you know, greater social justice, greater opportunity, a greater say in, in the way their lives are run. And I think you and I would both agree that Brexit was an attempt to to make that more possible, at least to get away from a system in which people are completely denied a real say in, in how their lives are run. Will this cause you know repercussions within our own political system? Well, I think a lot depends on how the present government and its successor take advantage of these things. You know, if it leads to nothing, a lot of people will rightly say, well, why did we go through all this? You know, it's made absolutely no difference. You know, I've still haven't got a job or I'm still, you know, working part time. My kids are not getting a decent education, you know, all that kind of thing. If something is not done to make their confidence, and I think the Brexit vote was a vote of confidence in at least the idea of, of national solidarity. It might have been to some extent a, a slightly worn confidence, a slightly disillusioned confidence, if there, if there can be such a thing. But I think many people felt, the people who voted for Brexit felt that this was their best chance, that if this was not to happen, then they might as well give up, hmm. because nobody would take any notice of them. It was, it was pretty clear, and it was made pretty clear to them, I think, that they were not needed, their voices didn't count. 
they were really surplus to requirements because all that counted was London and the south of England and its connections with the continent. And the rest of the country could be forgotten about. And if, if that doesn't change, then I think many people will have an absolute right to say, we trusted you and you promised things and they're not happening. And, th- and I think in that case, what would happen, you know, we're, we're not a, re- a revolutionary political culture, unlike the French, though it, you know, we might say it hasn't done them an awful lot of good. Probably a, a worse danger is of a growing a sort of apathy, yeah. a feeling that what's the point? I don't vote anymore because it doesn't do any good. They're all the same. People like me never get a fair chance, etc. And that's always a danger. And I think it's something that people have to keep pressing for and governments have to be made to listen. And, you know, if Brexit has a justification above all others, it's that this gives people a a chance to make the people who govern them listen, as opposed to a system, which is really a system of oligarchies, which are more and more insulated from popular opinion and popular wishes. And you could say, well, that was how the system was designed. You know, you, you, you quoted my quote about why should we let housewives decide these things? And that's always been part of the European project, I think. A feeling that democracy had, had proved itself too dangerous in the 1930s, yeah. which is unjust because, you know, Hitler and Mussolini were not voted into power by popular electorates. They were brought into power to try to save the hide of, of defeated conservatives. You know, Hitler never got a majority of votes, nor did Mussolini. But nevertheless, you know, people were blamed, electorates were blamed for, for this. And therefore, the, the elite thought, we must make sure that people no longer have this kind of power. It must be placed in the hands of experts, really depoliticized. And the idea of the nation, the idea of, you know, as we all know, it's now called populism which is a term I think one should be extremely cautious about or suspicious of, because I don't really see that it means anything more than democracy, except if you don't like the outcome, uh, and then it becomes populism. (laughs) But the idea that ordinary people have legitimate opinions and have interests that they have the right to defend, and that they are the people who count most is has been always, I think, alien to the whole European project. You know, at best, people can be given bread and circuses, to keep them happy, but they're certainly not to be given a say in how things operate. I think that was an excellent description of events of the past few decades. And I think the the worst and the most wrong lesson of the post-war period has been about the dangers of democracy and the necessity of insulating decision-making from untrustworthy people. And the possibility that outlook is now unravelling or is certainly under pressure I think is very positive. I want to, uh, just before we wrap up, you, you said earlier on that, you know, none of us necessarily wants to be trapped inside the culture wars, but I fear that all of us are for the time being. And I wanted to get your views as a historian on the culture wars as they pertain to history itself, because it strikes me that a pretty strange thing is happening in the UK at the moment and other countries too. But in the UK, there is this a pretty clear turn amongst sections of the cultural elites against British history, against the idea of British traditions. There's this growing notion that the United Kingdom was founded in sin. Its history is one long stain, one, you know, a litany of crimes. Where do you think that comes from? And what do you think is the best way to push back against that view of Britain? 
I mean, some of it comes from America. I think this is a, a lot of this is common to the Anglo-Saxon, if we can call it that, to the English-speaking world. You know, you get the same thing in Australia, or, or indeed more so yeah. in Canada, I think, and of course even more so in the United States. So, in, in a way, we we've imported this as we've imported so much. Where else does it come from? Well, I hope this doesn't sound too patronising, but there's always a tendency, and, and no doubt a healthy tendency, for young people to find some source of rebellion. When I was a student, there were there were loads of Maoist students who thought that Mao was Mao was a genius, and um, the Khmer Rouge victory in Cambodia was a great step forward. You know that you, you might say the present kind of woke culture was a lot less sinister than that. But the sense that you're you're kicking against the establishment or against mm. tradition or against the older generation is always very tempting. And this is, you could say, well, this is the present day form of that. What I find more worrying than that there are people who think this is that there are so many people in authority who need to go along with it. Yeah. Universities, museums, and, you know, you realize that this has become an enormous juggernaut of a, of a kind of industry, which is working towards in a sense, forcing people to accept a certain view of the past, not just by trying to persuade them that it's true, but by making them pay lip service at least to this, you know, to go in for compulsory training. I wish I could say my university is immune from this, but it's certainly not. So what's the explanation of this? I think it's quite difficult to say. Some of its big international corporations want to appeal to um, their customer base, or at least a certain element of their customer base. And a lot of our institutions, cultural institutions, it seems to me to be obeying the logic of, of business corporations. This is a way of making themselves look good. And I don't know that it's how profoundly they really believe it. But as you say, we're, we're stuck with it for the moment. What do you do about it? Well, I suppose as an academic, I have to say, you, you have to keep trying to say, what is the truth? Do we live in a post-truth society? Is it only the narrative that counts and a comforting or politically useful narrative that cannot be contradicted? It often seems like that. But all we can do is to, is to look at evidence and say this is not how it actually was. And people are telling you things that are not true or are half-truths or are, are distorted. But the impetus seems to be very much on one side at the moment. The, the, kind of the, the current is flowing in one direction at the moment. On that current, and this is my final question, and it's, it's far too large a question to be my final question, so forgive me for that. But I wanted to ask you what you think the future for British universities holds and whether you are optimistic or, or concerned. On the day we're speaking, it's been reported that Leicester University is, is thinking about teaching less Chaucer because Chaucer is obviously very old-fashioned and, and apparently not particularly relevant anymore. There are various efforts to decolonize curriculums, which often seems to mean taking out classical literature or ideas that were drafted by dead white European males and replacing them by different forms of thinking, different forms of literature. There does seem to be this slow moving, but pretty solid attempt to hollow out the citadels of knowledge by calling into question ideals of excellence, the Western canon, the kinds of traditions that I'm sure you and your colleagues have been interested in for a long time. How concerned are you about these drifts in university life? Do you think they can be held back? I, I certainly am concerned. I mean, I think for, for quite a, lot, a long time, there have been universities that have been jettisoning large parts of what would have been called, thought of as a sort of classical curriculum, partly because they weren't popular. And you've got to treat students 
as customers. So mm. if nobody wants to do Chaucer, then you don't do Chaucer. You don't say, yes, but you've got to do Chaucer because it's so important. You say, well, you know, we, we've got to get the customers in. And that I, I don't like, obviously. It's a sort of commercialization of education, which has been going on now for a generation. And I think it's had, on the whole, extremely bad effects. A second thing is I think there are small activist minorities. And of course, this happens in all sorts of areas. You have small groups of people who care very, very much about this. And most people don't care very much about it. And so it's very difficult to get people who will resist it because basically they can't be bothered or because the risks of, of doing it are too great. Because, you know, you can, you'll be accused of racism. Or something, you know. So activist minorities can get their way. And those in authority, whether because they agree with the activist minorities or because, once again, it's too risky to oppose them, tend to appease them. And I think it's really an appeasement process that is mainly going on. Robert, thank you very much. Well, a pleasure, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.